do, baby? What it do, baby? How's everybody doing today? We got a lot going on. If that'll shut off, there we go. We got a lot going on in the world of news and politics. Um, it's actually a pretty exciting show, if I don't say so myself, what I have lined up for y'all today. So let me give you a little bit of a rundown. Um, we have, of course, I have to weigh in on the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez thing. She wore a dress to the Met Gala that caused a firestorm. We will talk about that. The California recall election, Gavin Newsom versus Larry Elder. Um, I have an update on Caitlyn Jenner's campaign that you don't want to miss. Then, I mean, that's just like, that's just, we're just getting started there. Those are just the appetizers, because then we have a bombshell story about General Milley secretly undermining and overriding Trump after January 6th. I have many, many thoughts on that. Um, Then we have Tucker Carlson admitting something that he's probably regretting now to Dave Rubin, of all people. We have Rand Paul dismantling Blinken on drones. We have probably my favorite story of the day is a little off the beaten path. I don't think anybody else is going to cover this, but um, Morning Joe randomly went full socialist. Which, like, what? <laughs> what? My jaw was on the ground when I saw that that happened. So, wait, and, I, and you know what? I was considering, like, what, how much of this clip should I play for them? Eh, maybe two minutes or so. No, I'm going to play for you the whole, like, four-minute clip because it just keeps getting better and better and better, and it's unbelievable. So, yeah, I'm telling you guys, it's, uh, today is a wonderful show. It is a glorious show. And um, I will lean into all of my takes, whether whether my takes uh, be popular or not, <laughs> I will lean into every single one of them. So without further ado, let's get started. We're going to do that with the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez story. Here we go. So, of course, I had to comment on this, got to weigh in on this. This is the thing that blew up on Twitter a couple days ago. There was a firestorm around this. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez went to the Met Gala, um, and she, I assume all of you know at this point what the Met Gala is. I've commented on it. I feel like every other year I comment on it on some forum, usually on Twitter, where I just ruthlessly make fun of the people who go to it um, because it's, it's a who's who of elitist douchebags. So um, I'm sure you guys know what it is. Most people at this point know what it is. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was invited. She went to it, and she wore a dress when she was there where on the back it says, tax the rich. So there were, I mean, needless to say, there were critics from the right because with literally anything she does, she gets critics from the right. But then, of course, there's critics from the left as well. There's a, a growing contingent of the left that views her as insufficiently lefty and not fighting anywhere near hard enough and too cozy with power and all of these things. So um, I want to show you a little bit of her reaction to what happened. She says, the medium is the message. And before haters get wild flying off the handle, New York elected officials are routinely invited to and attend the Met due to our responsibilities in overseeing and supporting the city's cultural institutions for the public. I was one of several in attendance in this evening. So I don't like what she's doing there because she's making it seem like this, 
uh, this is, I, I'm doing this be, for the people. I'm going to this elitist douchebag gathering for the people. It's part of my responsibilities as an elected official to do it. I wish you would just be honest and be like, you know what? I want to hang around with the stars because I think hanging around with the stars is cool. Um, so it, there's more here. Proud to work with Aurora James as a sustainably focused black woman immigrant designer, hard on the identity politics there, who went from starting her dream at Brother Veli's at a flea market in Brooklyn to winning the CFDA against all odds, and then worked together to kick open the doors at the Met. The time is now for child care, health care, and climate action for all. Tax the rich. So that last part, 100% correct. I'm for child care. I'm for health care. I'm for climate action. I'm for taxing the rich. Um, Again, I don't like this notion of, like, we're there as these massive outsiders to kick down the doors at the Met. Mm, That's debatable at this point, just how much of an outsider Alexander Ocasio-Cortez is. So um, I thought a lot about this. Now, I want to first let me explain my initial reaction when I saw this. My initial reaction when I saw the gown was that of indifference. Uh, I looked at it and I saw, yeah, she's definitely trying to, Brianna Greyjoy put it back. This is sort of like a Rorschach test as to what your feelings are about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. If you already don't like her, you're going to see this as performative BS. You're going to see this as virtue signaling, which is totally empty and totally hollow and, um, you know, gets nothing done. You're also going to see it as hypocrisy that you're at this elitist gathering as you bring an anti-elitist message. If you already like her, you're going to look at this as her bringing an anti-elitist message into the lion's den among the elites. And you're going to view this as, you know, something that has no downside at all. So it really is, I think Brianna Joy Gray is correct, it really is a Rorschach test, which is why you see basically all of the right wing is against her. And, like, half of the actual left is against her because, again, they don't see her as sufficiently lefty enough and not fighting hard enough for the things that we all care about and we all want. But now my initial reaction, like I said, was sort of indifference. Like, I saw it and I was just like, eh. And I think the reason why I feel that way is because, um, like, for example, right now the left is holding strong in this, $3.5 trillion reconciliation negotiation. Um, And since they're actually holding the line at the moment and they haven't backed down, it's like, okay, well, we asked them to use their leverage. Now they're using their leverage. So, you know, credit where credit is due. You got to give credit where credit is due. If they do something in the course of this negotiation that I disagree with, then I'll be like, okay, no more credit because you guys backed down. They didn't back down to this point. Now, again, you guys know my red line in this bill, this uh, reconciliation negotiation. I say the bill's got to be $2 trillion or more, and it's got to have good provisions in it. Right now, the bill's phenomenal, $3.5 trillion. Um, I, I need them to be the final package to be at least $2 trillion or more and have good provisions in it. If it is, then I'm going to give them credit for having a seat at the table and negotiating well. If it's less than $2 trillion, I say, no, I'm voting against it. So I'll judge them in accordance with how they act on that. But right now, they're doing their job on this bill. So there's, that's one thing, and there's many things I could point to, but that's one thing where it's like, okay, they're doing a good job. Um, however, they've also done terrible jobs in the past, and also they gaslit us in the process. 
So when they failed to force the vote on Medicare for all, that was one thing. Now, you could say, well, hold on, Kyle, that was a long shot anyway. We didn't have the votes. We think it would have been counterproductive to, for the movement to get Medicare for all to do that. That's a, a legit opinion that many people have. I don't happen to agree with it, but that's a, an opinion that many people have. But then remember what Ocasio-Cortez said. She said, we got to keep our powder dry to force the vote on something like a $15 minimum wage because then we could actually win. And then the fight came along in the last reconciliation package for a $15 minimum wage, and she instantly backed down. And they didn't vote as a block. They didn't use their leverage. They didn't force the vote on a $15 minimum wage. They didn't try to force Biden to try to change the minds of the seven or eight Senate Democrats who were against the $15 minimum wage. If you have like 12 Democrats in the House that say we're not voting for any reconciliation package unless the $15 minimum wage is in there, then Biden is incentivized to try to change the minds of the seven or eight Democrats who are against the minimum wage in in the Senate. Because eight is a lower number than 12. So who are you going to try to convince? The eight or the 12? Well, Biden is for the $15 minimum wage. He signed the executive order to do $15 minimum wage uh, for federal workers. So, okay, if you agree with us enough to do it there, you want to do it in the whole country, force them to do it. So they said we're going to force the vote and fight on $15 minimum wage. Then they didn't. So the left was correct to be like, why are you being so weak? You know, why are you not fighting for these things we want you to fight for? So I think the reason why I felt indifference is because now they are fighting on something before they didn't fight on something. And my feelings towards not just AOC, but virtually all the elected justice Democrats are massively mixed. I understand that they're generally weak and they don't know how to vote together as a block and they're not nearly good enough. But I also have things in perspective and understand that they're not fucking Mitch McConnell. There's some people on the left who are so have so lost the plot that they genuinely think that, you know, the left flank in the House is equal to Mitch McConnell. If you believe that, you're just not evaluating the evidence and and the records properly. You know, you're just, you're letting your feelings override the facts on the situation. So the reason why I think I felt indifference is because they're massively mixed bags. Now, here's the thing. I don't want them to be mixed bags. I want them to be right about everything because that's why we sent them there. So, of course, I have a lot of criticisms of them, but I think I have things in perspective. So, um, here is my my general takeaway from her wearing this dress, because I thought a lot about this and about how it blew up and how everybody was arguing online. Um, I hate to say this, but at the same time, I don't. I really hate the online left, and I hate all the factions of the online left. And let me explain why. You have the AOC defense squad, where they sniff her farts every day and they act like she's the best thing since sliced bread, they're super annoying because they don't ever criticize her. And it's just, you know, she means well, she's good, so now I'm going to work backwards from that conclusion and try to, like, rationalize everything she does. That is dumb. Think for yourself. So they annoy me. But then you have the others who have AOC derangement syndrome, where they genuinely think she is like Mitch McConnell, when she's not, not even close, and they annoy me too. And so, you know, I look at this and I go, are we ever going to get anything done ever if, you know, nobody has a balanced viewpoint on this? Nobody is evaluating the records and the evidence well? And so that was my main takeaway. I hate to say it, but like I said, I I also don't really hate to say it. It, The on my left is super annoying. There's the AOC derangement syndrome and the AOC defense squad, and I can't stand either of them. Um... And then I also figured this out as I was looking at all, all of the fallout from this. 
I personally, not only do I hate the financial elite. Now, if you're genuinely on the left, you hate the financial elite. Like, it's a given. That's like part and parcel of being on the left is I hate the financial elite. So we all agree on that, whatever faction or subgroup of the left you're part of. But as I was watching this, I thought one of the reasons why, you know, I sort of get why people hate what AOC is doing here. I also hate the cultural elite. So I hate both the financial elite and the cultural elite. But there are some people on the left who hate the financial elite, but they don't hate the cultural elite. Or if anything, they might even like the cultural elite. So they might even like the Hollywood douchebags who virtue signal all day long and are just shitty, you know, run-of-the-mill liberals. So that, that's what, what dawned on me is that, like, I was joking on Twitter, and I was saying, if Biden drone strikes the Met Gala, I'd be, I'd be ecstatic. <laughs> I said something like, if you polled the American people, 63% of them would support sending everybody at the Met Gala to Guantanamo Bay. And it's like, that, I mean, obviously I'm joking, and I don't want those things to happen, but I hate those people. I hate them. Uh, what's his face? Bakari Sellers tweeted something like, it's funny watching y'all go after AOC, knowing damn well if you were invited to the Met Gala, you would, you would go. The fuck I would! Not in a million years would I go! I hate those people. I hate the financial elite, and I hate the cultural elite. I think they're terrible. I think they're terrible in different ways. There's the self-obsessed, narcissistic, hollow lives of the, the Hollywood elite and, and the cultural elite. Um, I want nothing to do with that, man. I would much rather hang out in a fucking union hall or a random bar in Arkansas. Now, not, I mean, I don't want to hang out in a random bar in Arkansas. Uh, I don't want to do anything, but, but more so than going to this shitty thing. And so I think one of the things that annoys me about AOC is that she loves the Hollywood shit, and, but she, and she also is trying to cloak it as in, no, 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 I don't even really love the Hollywood shit. I'm just doing this for the people. It's my responsibility. Stop. Stop. Remember when she was like, joking around with Chrissy Teigen on Twitter? She's happy to be in these elite circles. Now, okay, that's her prerogative, but at least be honest about it. At least be upfront about it and say, I might hate the financial elite, but I love the cultural elite. But see, that's one of the things. I'll never, I'll never fully agree on that front. And I think that is another split on the left. You have people on the left who are against the financial elite and the cultural elite, and then you have people on the left who are only against the financial elite. And um, that, that, I think, is an irreconcilable difference because you're going to have the people who are stargazers, and they just can't get enough of that world. And then you're going to have the people who are disdainful of the stargazers because also that's another world where it's not really a meritocracy. Like everybody on the left understands that when it comes to the – financial world, it is not a meritocracy. It's not the harder you work, the further you go, and that's why people are billionaires. But there are some people who inexplicably believe that in, in the cultural sphere, if you somehow made it to the top, well, it's because you deserved it, and you earned it, and you're like a good person, and you're an interesting person. No! Most of those people are fucking assholes! <laughs> so that's one of the things, man, uh, um, that even though overall I'm sort of, I'm just split on, on looking at the fallout from this AOC thing with the dress. And I, I see where everybody's coming from in, in the argument. Ultimately, I, do, I am more on the side of like, I hate the Met Gala. I hate the cultural elite. If you're trying to get along with them, it is hard for me to trust you in any real way. Because those values are so misaligned 
with where I am. Now, again, if you end up ultimately doing the right thing on all the policy stuff and fighting the right way, well, then, yeah, I could overlook it. But like I said, AOC is a mixed bag. Sometimes she does the right thing, and sometimes she doesn't, and she's weak, and they don't vote as a block, these House progressives. And now, again, right now with the reconciliation package, full credit because they're doing it, um, but I'm going to criticize them when they're wrong. So, listen, I would just implore everybody who's watching this, and I know my commentary is not going to make, you know, the people happy on this. I don't care because I'm telling you guys what I really think about it, but I would just implore everybody to, for the love of God, don't do a new fashionable version of tribalism. And that is what I see a lot on the on- online left is that – so there's – everybody can see how gross the partisan tribalism is when it comes to, like, the Democratic Party defense squad or the Republican Party defense squad, you know? It's easy to see, what, like, if it, like, the K-Hive people or the hardcore Trump stands. Everybody sees it and everybody knows it's gross. But there are, there are left-wing versions of tribalism. There are. And, you know, one of them is the squad is always right. Th- those people are obnoxious and annoying, and they're just as tribalist as the hardcore Democrats or the hardcore Republicans. They are. But another, uh, you know, tribal faction on the left is all the politicians are corrupt. All the politicians are exactly the same. No, that makes no sense. Like, yes, most of them are corrupt. 90, 95% of them are corrupt. But they're not all the same. There is a, a spectrum and there is a scale. And there is such a thing as, you know, a politician being center left versus somebody being hard right. Like, again, if you genuinely think, well, now Bernie Sanders is equal to Mitch McConnell or AOC is equal to Mitch McConnell, you're just doing a new version of dumb tribalism. And, you know, that is a thing that exists. So for the love of God, don't I, stop trying to signal to your left-wing click in-group that I'm with this faction of the left. I don't give a fuck. And nobody really gives a fuck in the grand scheme of things. So just call balls and strikes and call like it is and look at what's happening and be honest about it. And there's so little of that going on, and it really gets under my skin. It really annoys me. But ultimately, again, I see what was going on with this fight around AOC and the dress. But the fact of the matter is, even though I get super annoyed by this, um, we got to focus on the more important issues. we got to focus on the, the serious policy stuff. I, I will never see eye-to-eye with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the cultural elite. She loves them. I hate them. Um, and I sort of do want to drone strike the Met Gala. But, you know, we should be focusing on more serious issues. That's super important. Oh, final point on this. It, it was a, a $30,000 per plate event. And I think what happened is the Met comped her $30,000 her plate thing. It was her and her boyfriend went. So, yeah, I, uh, people are pointing out the hypocrisy of like, you know, you're hobnobbing with these assholes and while you pretend, while you posture against them. I have no doubt that you would vote in a second to raise taxes on them. But yeah, I want you to raise taxes on them and also not want to try desperately to be part of the cool kids club. Because that's what it is. It's somebody who wants to be part of the cool kids club while at the same time pretending like, I hate the cool kids. I think that's why this gets under a lot of people's skin, and that I totally get. Okay. All right, next. Here we go. 
So California Governor Gavin Newsom has survived his recall in crushing fashion. So there was a time in July and August where the polls got really tight on this. And some people were speculating, hey, it could happen. He could get booted out of office, and then that would mean that Larry Elder takes over. Now, Larry Elder is a hardcore right-wing radio host who would have become governor of California. But in the end, there was uh, quite a bit of separation, and there was a lot of consolidating around Gavin Newsom among Democrats in California. So let me go ahead and give you the numbers here. The question number one was, should Governor Newsom be removed from office? People who said no, 64% as of right now, with 70% of the vote in, 64% said no. Yes was only 36%. So you can see it's like 5.8 million to uh, about 3.3 million. Then the second question is, if Governor Newsom is removed, who should take his place? There you have Larry Elder, 47%, crushing everybody else. Um, uh, Papras, I don't know his first name or who he is, 10%. He was a Democrat. He got the next one. Uh, Falconer got 9%. Bob Ross, I'm just kidding. I don't know if his name is actually Bob Ross. Bob Ross was that painter guy who was really cool. Um, Ross is a Dem. He got 6%. Um, so this ultimately ended in an embarrassing way for Larry Elder and for the Republicans. And the funny thing is, this was sort of a winnable race if they went with a Republican that was a lot more palatable to Californians. Because again, Larry Elder is hard right, but he's a Trump stan. And in California, you're going to have a rough go of that because it's one of the most democratic states in the country. So there, there is precedent for this too, because there was, Gray Davis was recalled. He was a Democratic governor in California. And Arnold Schwarzenegger ended up winning as a Republican. So he's a celebrity and a Republican. He ended up becoming governor of California. That's, that's how he became governor. Um, so it wasn't impossible for a Republican to win, but he would have had to do it uh, Schwarzenegger style, which he presented himself as a moderate. He would have had to do it Larry Hogan style, who presented himself as a moderate. Um, Larry Elder did not do that. Sort of leaned into his, his Trumpism, leaned into those hardcore right-wing beliefs. Now, on the one hand, that's more respectable because it's like, oh, you actually believe these things. But on the other hand, it's politically Silly, because it's never going to work in California, and it's never going to work in Hawaii, and it's never going to work in New York. It's never going to work in the hardcore um, Democratic states. So this ended up becoming, instead of being a, a referendum on Newsom, he managed to flip the narrative and make it a referendum on Trumpism. So they, rightly, they pointed out, hey, Larry Elder isn't in favor of the minimum wage. He's not in favor of any gun control. He's anti-vax. And they were, just, they were just clonking him over the head with all these beliefs that are wildly out of lockstep with what Californians believe. And don't get it twisted, Newsom has a lot of dirt on him. I mean, he was famously caught eating at this, you know, elite restaurant in the middle of COVID. Everybody else has to wear a mask. He's in there with a bunch of assholes not wearing a mask. And so it, it, was, this, it was this big story because it was a sign of this colossal hypocrisy of the ruling class. Um, they were not wearing masks, but the servers have to wear masks. And it was like, look, this is a guy who's do as I say, not as I do. And, but funny enough, when you looked at the polls, so people were able to get over that. They didn't care that that happened. But also when you look at the polls, um, they, two-thirds of California voters support the mask mandate and the vaccine mandate. Now, I don't, I'm not well-versed enough on what the specifics are in, in the example of California with the mask mandates and the um, vaccine mandates. But whatever those specifics are, the people of California in droves, Support it. And so 
one of the things he did was he leaned into, listen, the second they take over, there are going to be no more coronavirus protections. This guy's not in favor of vaccines. He's not in favor of masks. It's going to be the Wild West out here. We need to make sure we protect people. And the voters of California, again, very Democratic state, they agree with COVID restrictions. They may even be more in favor of restrictions than I am. You know what I mean? But that's the electorate there. And so the other thing this shows is Trumpism is still the base of the Republican Party because they had other options. There were other options that were non-Trumpist options, and they went with the Trumpist. So they're sort of in this conundrum. They're sort of in this pickle of, like, the people who do the best in our party are the people who can't seem to win recently at the national level when it was Biden versus Trump, but even at the state level. However, here's where I'm going I'm to caution everybody, because all the articles are already saying that, like, well, Democrats are feeling confident now going into the midterms. First of all, they didn't do any election reform, which means they need to win by, like, six or seven points just to keep the numbers they already have, because all, you know, they need gerrymandering, redistricting, all these issues. They didn't do anything on that front. And as a result of that, the Republicans have a giant built-in advantage. But also, you can't get cocky. Biden barely squeaked out a victory against Trump when half a million uh, Americans died. And honestly, in a state like California, even though Newsom won by more than was originally projected, I mean, 63% of the vote in one of the most democratic states in the country, I mean, that should be like 75%, right? There should be 70 or 75%. So in the midterms, generally speaking, turnout is lower too. And whenever turnout is lower, that helps Republicans. So the base of the Republican Party is going to show up guaranteed and Democrats can get a little lackadaisical in the midterms and that would spell doom for the Democrats. So putting all that stuff together they're going to get this false sense of security because, yes, it, you know, this strategy can work in isolation from time to time when you have the boogeyman that's a, that's a genuine boogeyman. So Biden ran on let's get back to normal and, and this guy's insane. Just look at him. Effectively, Newsom ran on the same thing. Uh, let's get back to normal, keep these restrictions in place, and this guy's fucking crazy. Look at him. That's a seasonal message, dog. I don't think that could work in perpetuity. I think that, you know, that only takes you so far. At some point, on the Democratic side specifically, you have to be for something. You can't just be, I'm against the Republican. Okay, that's easy. That's obvious. Anybody who's on the left agrees with that. But what else? What else? I mean, Newsom ran on single-payer health care in his last election, and he's dragging his feet on it. He's not really dragging his feet on it. He's actually against it. And he's making sure it doesn't get into place. So you got to actually do shit. It can't just be, look at the boogeyman over here. And I think they're going to get too comfortable and they're going to run on that when that's not enough. Like at a certain point, the horrors of Trumpism are going to be something of the past to Americans, just like with George W. Bush. The horrors of George W. Bush went away. Now he has a favorable approval rating. The horrors of Trump, the horrors of, the horrors of Larry Elder, who is a Trumpist, that'll sort of fade away at some point. And then what are you going to run on? And then what are you going to run on? So add in the fact that the Republicans have a built-in advantage and the Democrats need to win by a lot to win anything. And, and add in the fact that Republicans are going to show up in the midterms, Democrats maybe not. And add in the fact that 
this message, they're going to get overconfident with this lazy message. I don't think it's going to go well for the Democrats in the midterms, not at all. But they're going to take this, and they're going to take confidence from this, and I think that's the wrong takeaway. So, you know, if they had run somebody who was a little more palatable, it would have been a lot closer. But since they ran, you know, a right-wing radio host was the face of the opposition, uh, Newsom was able to clearly make it um, a referendum on them, a referendum on Trumpism. So Biden won California by like 30 points. You know, Newsom's going to win this by a lot as well. I don't know if this is a model elsewhere moving forward. But, I mean, I just think in today's day and age, I do think partisanship is at just record highs as well. You have the hardcore partisans. There's really, there's little wiggle room anymore. And how that bodes in the future is yet to be seen. But I do think in the midterms, the Republicans are a favorite by, by quite a bit. But listen, we'll find out, you know, we'll find out soon. But Gavin Newsom did sort of bury this guy. I mean, in a way that the race was tight in July, the race was tight in August, and then they did run on the message of fear, like, you really want this guy in power? You really want the anti-vaxxer in charge? You really want the pro-Trump person? You really want the anti-minimum wage person? You know, hey, it's your prerogative, but don't do it. It's me or it's the Republican. That's how they were able to message this thing. And it definitely worked in the short run. Now we'll see what Gavin Newsom does from here on out. My guess is not much beyond the status quo. Okay. Okay. So I got one more story in regards to the California recall. So we had the uh, California recall election. Gavin Newsom ended up winning by quite a bit. The polls were tight in July and August, and he just pulled away. Um, I didn't talk much about this on the show because as soon as Larry Elder became the face of the opposition, he's a right-wing radio host. He's way too extreme for California. I sort of felt like even though the polls were tight at one point, Gavin's going to end up winning this. I didn't know what the margin would be, but he was going to end up winning it. I didn't really find it all that interesting. Well, now we have the results. What is interesting to me, though, is that it's how Caitlyn Jenner did in the election. Because, I mean, you want to talk about a, a, a thought I had that was wildly off base. Um, I would have guessed that Caitlyn Jenner would have put up a stronger showing than this and maybe even would have been the main opposition to Gavin Newsom. You know, because they elected in the past, California elected Arnold Schwarzenegger as a Republican governor. And so they do have that love of celebrity thing. So I thought, hey, maybe, Caitlin, you never know. I mean, it's highly unlikely it was a long shot that she would ever win. But I thought she'll probably be the main opposition to Gavin Newsom. I didn't expect a, you know, a sort of obscure B-level or C-level right-wing radio host. I didn't expect that person to become the face of the opposition. That person did. Larry Elder, he got draxed. But Caitlyn Jenner got draxed even more, son. This is painful. So the independent says, 
Caitlyn Jenner fumes over Newsom surviving recall after getting 1.1% of the vote to replace him. I can't believe that this many people actually voted to keep him in office. She got 1%, dog? 1%? She was trying to run a real campaign. She was doing all these interviews in all these different places. She hired a team of, like, actual, you know, real political staffers. And when all was said and done, she got 1% of the vote. By the way, the reason why she thought, hey, Newsom could go down here is because she would say, hey, when I was on the campaign trail, people would come up to me and they would say, we got to get this guy out. And she said throughout her whole time campaigning, only one person came up to, to her and said, um, I think Gavin Newsom's doing a good job. So she had that, it was like a selection bias where she felt like, well, everybody's against this guy. No, anybody who comes up to you is inclined to be against that guy. That's widely different from everybody being against that guy. Um, and really, at the end of the day, I think the California voters realized, the political article put it well. They said, it's not like people were excited to go vote no on the recall and keep Newsom in office. They viewed it as taking out the trash. So even though there was no, they, they weren't excited for it. They just thought, well, obviously not Larry Elder. That guy's insane. He's anti-vax. He's anti-minimum wage. He's against gun control. He's extreme. All the COVID protections that they have in place, which are actually popular in California. They thought this guy's going to get rid of them like that. And so they were just like, let me get this over with and just keep Gavin Newsom, you know, in power. So the polls didn't really reflect the reality of it because even though there was no enthusiasm on the Democratic side, it didn't matter. It didn't ultimately matter because people viewed it like taking out the trash. Fine, no on the recall. There you go. Um, So 1% of the vote. So then the question is, how the hell did that happen? There's three answers that I I could come up with here. Um, So the first one is, Yeah, I do think it's the case that she sort of aligned herself with Trump at one point, and Larry Elder, who was the leader in the recall, he was was a Trumpist. So there are Trumpists in California, and they're still the majority of the base of the Republican Party. So she aligned herself with Trump and everything, but I do think that among that right-wing base, there is a strong contingent of like, I'm not really comfortable with the trans thing. So I do think that was an aspect of it. I do. Now, how big of an aspect is it? Well, that's debatable, you know, because it's possible for there to be a trans person who is just a better, more dynamic, more charismatic, more likable person who could do better. But, you know, it's certainly a factor, not the ultimate factor, but it's a factor. Um, The other thing is, so the trans thing, I don't think they really liked. The other thing is, she's not that likable. She, just as a person, she's not that likable. Totally apart from, you know, the fact that she's trans. Um, I mean, this is a person who killed somebody with her car and sort of got away with it. That alone, people look at and they're like, Ugh. Now, I don't know what percentage of the voters actually knew that, but he, she doesn't have that X factor, that X factor that a lot of candidates have. Like, I don't know, I just like the person. So uh, that's another reason. And the other thing is, this is, this honestly, I think, might be the, one of the main things, is that Republicans, so you have the left hates the financial elite, and many on the left hate the financial elite and the cultural elite, but the biggest thing on the left is we hate the financial elite. The right 
Many on the right actually don't hate the financial elite. Some of them do, but they don't hate the financial elite. But also, they like the cultural elite. Or excuse me, my brain doesn't work this morning. They definitely hate the cultural elite on the right. So she is the embodiment of the cultural elite. She's from Hollywood. She is part of the LGBTQ community. She is part of the Kardashian family who are worth a a gajillion dollars and who are on TV, were on TV 24-7 for the past, like, Lord knows how long, 15 years, something like that. They look at her and they see this is part of what Trump positioned himself against. Now, of course, there's the irony that Trump was Hollywood, Ronald Reagan was Hollywood, but they felt like, well, these guys represent us and despise the rest of the cultural elite, where Caitlyn Jenner does not despise the rest of the cultural elite. Caitlyn Jenner is part of that world. And so I think they looked at her and they thought, no way. They're not comfortable with the trans thing. Um, she's just not that likable overall. She hates the cultural, or she, um, they hate the cultural elite, and she represents the cultural elite. And really, also in terms of her policies, she's just a standard, like, Ayn Rand-style right-winger, like uber-capitalist. There's not even a hint of populism in her. So at the end of the day, when push came to shove, she got absolutely obliterated. I really thought she'd do better than this. I really thought she would get, honestly, at least like 10% of the vote, at least 10%. So I was way off on that. But Larry Elder, a much lower-level celebrity who's been about this right-wing stuff his whole life, that's the person who was the face of the opposition. And even slimy used cars salesman Gavin Newsom was able to take him down because it's it's a Democratic state. It's a big Democratic state. And, um, you know, it's tough to run as a far-right candidate in a state like California. And Larry Elder learned that the hard way. It'll be interesting to see who runs against Newsom next. Because uh, he's up for election very soon. This was just a recall election. The actual election is actually not that far in the future. So we shall see for sure. Um, what an embarrassing showing. This is, I mean, this 1% is so sad. I think that what she's going to do, what Caitlyn Jenner is going to do, is she had a film crew with her the whole time. She's going to release a documentary and she's going to, like, play the victim. And. It's going to be insufferable, but I'll definitely watch it because it'll be worth it just for the lols. All right, next, here we go. So there's a big story that came out the other day. Um, We learned this from Bob Woodward's new book. Apparently, General Milley secretly undercut Trump and overrode him after January 6th. So there were concerns among our allies and among other nations that what the hell's going on over there? This is crazy. This is unstable. We need to be reassured by the Americans that everything's under control. And so General Milley um, was in contact with Nancy Pelosi, CIA, the NSA, and China. And basically the message was like, Trump ain't in charge. I'm in charge. So it was almost like a shadow coup in a way. Now, the reason I say shadow is because he didn't physically take over and become president and, you know, actually do a military coup. He just said, I'm operating behind the scenes and I'm really the one who's pulling the strings. And if he does something that I don't agree with, 
we're going to nip it in the bud. So uh, here's CNN reporting on this. Pay attention carefully to what they say in every part of this, this clip, because there is sort of like a contradictory message in here. So let's watch, and then I'm going to come back and tell you guys my breakdown. Dramatic breaking news, the perils of Trump. America's top general, just two days after the January 6th Capitol insurrection, so worried about the then-president's angry and erratic behavior, he called a secret meeting with top deputies, including the chain of command for the country's nuclear arsenal. General Mark Milley's message at that meeting, no one was to act on any orders for military strikes, even from the president, unless Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, was personally involved in the sign-off as called for by Pentagon protocols. Details of that extraordinary top-secret Pentagon meeting, among the many startling new revelations about the final days of the Trump presidency in peril, the brand-new book by the legendary Washington Post journalist Bob Woodward and his colleague at the Post, Robert Costa. Our CNN special correspondent, Jamie Gangelis, obtained an early copy of this book, and she is with us now. Wow. John, Woodward and Costa, as you say, report that uh, General Mark Milley took top-secret action to limit President Trump's ability to make a military strike or to use nuclear weapons. Let me just stay, set the stage from the book. According to Woodward and Costa on January 8th, Milley is deeply shaken from the assault on the Capitol on the 6th. He believes Trump, to your point, is unstable, unpredictable, and Woodward and Costa write, Milley believes that Trump is in serious mental decline. He also has been talking back channel to the Chinese. He is aware from intelligence that the Chinese are on edge because of January 6th and because of Trump's behavior. So he's trying to reassure them behind the scenes. And Milley tells his senior staff, quote, you never know what a president's trigger point is. Against this backdrop, same day, January 8th, Milley gets a call from Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. We've heard about this call, but Woodward and Costa got an exclusive transcript of the call. Pelosi has the same concerns that Milley does. The phone call is dramatic. It is blunt. And Pelosi wants Milley to reassure her that the nuclear weapons are safe. And this is the exchange. Pelosi. Who knows what he might do? He's crazy. You know he's crazy. He's been crazy for a long time. So don't say you don't know what his state of mind is. He's crazy. And what he did yesterday, meaning actually two days ago, January 6th, is further evidence of his craziness. General Milley says, Madam Speaker, I agree with you on everything. Uh, Milley reassures Pelosi on the call, but when he gets off, he thinks to himself, She's right, and he decides to take this extraordinary action. So they write in the book about this secret memo that General Milley found out, without his knowledge, the president was trying to very quickly pull troops out of Afghanistan before he left office. Milley had proof that President Trump could go rogue. He had done it once before. A week after uh, Trump loses the election, on November 11th, this memo, a military directive, shows up unexpectedly at the Pentagon. It is a secretly drafted and signed by the president memo saying you're going to get out of Afghanistan by January 15th before Trump's presidency is over. There's just one problem. 
no one on the national security team, no one at the Pentagon knew that this had been drafted uh, and signed. It had been done by two Trump loyalists at the White House. They had done an end run around the national security team. So here's what they're saying here, which why this is such a confusing story, because on the one hand, they're saying, look, after January 6th, Trump was acting in a very erratic way. They think he basically snapped and he was in mental decline and he was unhinged and Lord only knows what he's going to do. And at the start, they, they say, hey, don't let him launch the nukes. You know, don't let him start a war because who the hell knows what's going on here. It looks like there was an you know, attempted coup and he was sort of egging it on. And so everybody behind the scenes was like, this is chaos. This is wild. This is scary. And the idea was, this is what they're saying at the beginning of the clip. The idea was, hey, assure China, assure whoever else our allies, don't worry, everything's under control here. We're going to make sure that things don't get too out of hand. And I'm not going to let that guy press the red button. I'm not going to let him do that. That's what they say at the beginning. Then notice, at the end, what did they say? Oh, Trump drafted a memo, a special order, to withdraw fully from Afghanistan before he leaves office. And they say, well, he didn't tell the intelligence agencies. He didn't tell the Pentagon. He didn't tell many in his staff. How could he do such a thing? Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. He's the commander-in-chief. He's the president of the United States. The idea of withdrawing from Afghanistan is wildly popular, as we've still seen because Biden did it. Now, the way he did it, of course, people don't give him high marks, but because the media does relentless propaganda. Look, I digress from that. Fact of the matter is, Trump is the commander-in-chief. He has every right to withdraw troops if he wants to withdraw troops. And in doing so, he would be representing the will of the American people. So, but at, so at the end, they say, Milley needed to intervene to stop Trump from withdrawing from Afghanistan. Well, hold on. You were just telling me he intervened to stop a war, to prevent a war, to stop Trump from pressing the red button. Now you're telling me he actually intervened for the opposite reason, which is to keep a war going. Which is it? So, uh, listen, it looks to me like, I mean, I guess you could say they had both things in mind. Like, the reason why Milley talked to Pelosi, talked to the CIA and the NSA, talked to China, said, hey, 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 everything's cool, is because he wanted to let everybody know, hey, it's not going to get any more out of hand than this. I'm in control. I'm the steady hand at the wheel. That's an argument for maybe one of the ways it went down. But I also do tend to believe that last part where they're saying, also, he sort of overrode the memo that said we need to get out of Afghanistan. So here's the thing. If Milley intervened to prevent a nuclear strike on another country, he's a hero. He's a hero. I don't care about your, you know, what does the law say? What are, what's, the, what's the chain of command and the paperwork? And, and if we, he nukes Botswana... Does he follow the right protocols? I don't care about the protocols if he's going to nuke Botswana. I want you to stop him from nuking Botswana. So if that's the case, he's a hero. But if it's the case that he intervened to prevent the Afghanistan withdrawal, he's a villain. It's possible it was both things. Hey, I'm going to stop him from doing another war, but I'm also going to keep him in the war we're currently in. I guess that's possible. But honestly, it seems to me more like it was just the latter. I'm just guessing. I'm just speculating. But we know how that deep state works. And it strikes me like, yes, there was a lot of chaos. Yes, there was a lot of mayhem. Um, but for him to say, 
I'm going to override this special order to pull out of Afghanistan, I definitely am against him doing that. Definitely am against him doing that. And in that instance, then I understand people more saying, well, wait a second, he's the commander-in-chief. He's in charge. You, can't, you weren't democratically elected. He was democratically elected. Agree or disagree with Trump, he was. And he was carrying out the will of the American people if indeed he was going to pull out. So that's why this story is so complicated and this story is so confusing. If General Milley both prevented a war and kept us in a war, I don't know what my reaction is because that's just chaos and mayhem. And one of the things he did would be um, bad and one of the things he did would be good. If he just prevented a war then he'd be good. If he just kept us in a war, then he'd be bad. So I don't know. I don't know what actually went down here. But my suspicion is he didn't prevent a war. He didn't prevent a war. He kept us in the Afghanistan war. And he went around the commander-in-chief to do it, which is not okay, which is not okay at all. Because then, and here's a way to think about this, guys. Let's say Bernie Sanders was president. Let's say Bernie Sanders orders the withdrawal from Iraq. And Millie or some general does the same shit and says, we're not going to abide by that order. We'd all look at that and say, well, then we're not a democracy. This isn't the United States of America anymore. We're a police state. That's an authoritarian, dictatorial, tyrannical end run. It's a, it's a military coup, basically, even though he didn't technically take over if he's overriding the president on an issue where the president is representing the American people, he can't do that. So, I mean, listen, that's my breakdown of it. I know that, you know, it's sort of like it's messy to talk about it all because there are different possible scenarios. Like, if it is true, I don't need to run through it again. You already heard me say it a million times. But the fact of the matter is, if he both prevented a war and kept us in a war, that's just astounding and weird and total chaos, and he's half hero, half villain. If he just prevented a war, he's a hero. If he just kept us in a war, he's a villain. You understand? So anyway, that's where I stand on this. But either way, either way, the precedent is not good. And in order to understand that, you just have to imagine a president who you like, in theory, doing something good, and then that being shut down by the generals with no recourse. That's not... American, you know, that is, that, that would be such a terrible precedent that, again, we cease to really exist as we imagine ourselves. So this is a wild story. Um, and, of course, you're going to have, I've already seen the reaction to this. You're going to have the people who support Trump are going to say, how dare you undermine the president? Um, you can't do that. That's unconstitutional. That's illegal. It, you know, you're trying to force us to stay in a war that he wanted to pull out of. The Trump people are going to defend him. But then you have the Democrats who are now, now think Millie's a hero, regardless of what Millie did. You know, even if Millie kept us in Afghanistan and overrode the commander in chief, I think a lot on the Democratic side would be, thank God the, a serious adult was in charge. Well, no. I guess you could say he was a serious adult if he was preventing a war, but if he was keeping us in one, that's not serious adult stuff. That's like evil comic book villain, military industrial complex serving stuff, you know? So wild story, man, wild story. You, I mean, you could only hope that 
the real reason why the establishment was so iffy on Trump is just because he's such an unhinged character personally. You know what I mean? And so you just hope that if there's a president who gets to power who's just seemingly not unhinged, that all of a sudden they'll respect the way things are supposed to work a little bit more. Because if this is a precedent that's set and it continues forward, it's like, why even have elections, you know? So, wow. It's always interesting to learn that behind the scenes, on January 6th, it was just as chaotic as it looked in front of the scenes. You know, it's a scary thought, but it's true that as we're watching everything unfold and go, what the hell is going on here? People with a lot of authority and a lot of power looking at it saying the same damn thing. So, very wild, very tumultuous time in American history. Okay. So Tucker Carlson um, really messed up here. Tucker Carlson had a moment of raw honesty where he really let it all slip. And I'm sure now in retrospect, he's probably regretting a lot of what he said. When you have to cover some idiotic thing that Stelter said or Cuomo, just these, these clown people, when you have to cover it, right, or Don Lamont, as you call him, like, what, how do you think they live with themselves at this point when they just lie again and again and we have the Internet to expose the lies? And this isn't 20 years ago when you were on CNN yeah. and, we, and we couldn't expose things. We can expose it now and they still do it. Well, it's, I guess I would ask myself, like, I mean, I lie. If I'm really cornered or something, I lie. I really try not to. I try never to lie on TV. I, try, I just don't, you know, I don't like lying. I certainly do it, you know, out of weakness or whatever. But to systematically lie like that mm-hmm. without asking yourself, like, why am I doing this? So if these people ask themselves, why am I doing this? You say, well, because I want to protect the system, because I really believe in the system. Okay, who's running the system? You're... You're lying to defend Jeff Bezos? Like you're treating you're treating Bill Gates like some sort of moral leader? Like are you kidding? Like how dare you do that? How dare you use your power to protect and guard the powerful? You do that too, Tucker. Like that's what's so amazing about this clip. Is he's actually correct in his criticism of CNN. They are a bunch of liars over there. MSNBC, they are a bunch of liars over there. Oftentimes, they do lie to protect the powerful. In their case, it's like uh, Democratic elites. You know, it's the financial elite and Democratic elites because that's more where their politics are. But he just admitted it right there. He just said it. I lie. I lie if I'm cornered or something. I lie. I don't like to do it. Try not to do it on TV. But I lie. Yeah, that's right. We know that. And... You, Tucker, are the mirror image of what you're criticizing. You lie to protect the Trump types. That's who you lie for. That's what you do. So, you know, and we've seen this a million times. There are times where he just massively over-defends Donald Trump. And it's like, well, why would you do that? Because you are a propagandist. You are a paid propagandist. You know what your role is. Your role is more sophisticated than the likes of Hannity, who's just a rank partisan hack, down-the-line conservative views, you try to sprinkle in a little bit of that economic populism to get a younger audience. 
I'm not even totally against you. I'm, I'm with you, man. That's right. But let's redirect all of that energy into Republican Party politics where all populism goes to die a fiery death. So, yeah, you are guilty of the exact thing you're accusing CNN of being guilty of. You know, they lie to protect Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates. You lie to protect Donald Trump and Steve Bannon. Well, guess what? Donald Trump, Steve Bannon, Bill Gates, and Jeff Bezos are all scourges in their own way. And I don't need to go into the details of that. Obviously, if you're well-versed in this stuff, you understand why that is. But, I mean, that is quite an admission, man. Because, and here's the main takeaway, guys. How can you trust anything that this guy says now? Because he just says, I lie. I lie some of the time. Okay, so then how do I know when you're doing that and when you're not doing that? Now I just have to take every single thing you say and look at it skeptically because I'd be an idiot if I didn't do that. I would be a monumental moron if I didn't do that. You just told me you lie, which means now everything you say has to be under the microscope, of course. Now, the fact of the matter is everything he said should have been under the microscope anyway. Anything any political commentator says should be under the microscope anyway. But now he's giving you extra reason. Hey, if you don't fact check me, if you don't look into it every time I say something, then you're a sucker. And it's like you want to be lied to. You want to be misled. You want to just rah-rah play for a team that you like, that you more align with culturally. So he's like, listen, he's letting you know. He's waving the flag. He's being upfront about it. He said, I lie sometimes. So anybody who likes him, however tiny percentage of, uh, percentage of people watching this show that are in that boat, well, now, I mean, this is, you'd be silly to trust moving forward, wouldn't you? Because he's telling you you shouldn't trust. He's telling you, I lie. I lie. And so, I mean, he said it as if everybody could, like, everybody could relate to it. I certainly can't relate to it. I have one rule in my discourse and my commentary, and it's tell you guys the exact truth as I see it. Now, from time to time, I get stuff wrong because I'm human, but if I get it wrong, I come out and try to correct it. Like, it's one thing to get things honestly incorrect and wrong. That happens from time to time here, of course. But I never lie. That, like, the one rule in this business, if you want to be honest, is don't lie. There's one thing, when you basically sign up to do what it is we do here, the, the one thing everybody asks of you, and it's obvious, is just bear it all. Just be transparent, bear it all, tell us exactly what you think on all the issues. And as long as you do that, you'll be rewarded. Now, every now and then sometimes you say something that's really unpopular and people don't like it. Okay, fair enough. But you build the trust over time where even when people disagree, you know, 90% of the time they're like, that's, it's fine that I disagree with him on this because I know it's coming from a good place. He's telling you sometimes what I say does not come from a good place. I lie only when I'm really cornered. That's when I lie. And that is quite the admission. That is quite the admission. And no, that doesn't make him uniquely honest to say this. Because I could tell you from doing this, doing the similar thing that he does, you know, we're both political commentators. The one rule I have is always have to tell exactly what I think. Always be honest. 
That's it. So he's violating the one rule in this business. The one rule. Now, I don't have the rest of that clip, but I'm sure Dave Rubin didn't follow up with, uh, you know, a line of inquiry about that point that he made. I'm sure of it. Okay. All right, let me do one more, then we'll take a break. Here we go. So Rand Paul um, was in this hearing of Anthony Blinken. Blinken, of course, is there representing the Biden administration. And this is about the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Now, I want to pause on that for a second. Imagine having a hearing, a five-plus-hour hearing. That was just one day. I think it went on multiple days. Um, on the Afghanistan withdrawal. So nobody requested a hearing on the 20 years of lies and war crimes and profiteering and exploitation and imperialism. Nobody asked for a hearing on that stuff. Nobody asked for a hearing on how we aligned with warlords with child sex slaves. Nobody asked about that. What they want a hearing on is the withdrawal. The best part of the entire time we were there, the most orderly and successful part, that's the part they have a problem with. So now 98% of the questions, he's just being pelted with hawkish garbage. But uh, Rand Paul actually chimed in, and this is a great time to bring up the, I think it's the Onion article that said, heartbreaking, worst person you know made a good point, or something along those lines. Uh, so here is Rand Paul with a line of inquiry uh, to Blinken about the follow-up drone strike after the airport attack. Watch. The guy the Biden administration droned, was he an aid worker or an ISIS-K operative? Uh, the uh, administration is, of course, reviewing that, uh, that strike, uh, and I'm sure that a you know, full assessment will be, will be forthcoming. So you don't know if it was an aid worker or an ISIS-K operative? Uh, I can't speak to that, and I can't speak to that in this setting in any event. So you don't know or won't tell us? Uh, I, don't, I don't know because we're, we're reviewing it. Well, see, you'd think you'd kind of know before you off somebody with a Predator drone, whether he's an aid worker or he's an ISIS-K. See, the thing is, is this isn't just you. It's been going on for administration after administration. The Obama administration droned hundreds and hundreds of people. And the thing is, is there is blowback to that. I mean, I don't know if it's true, but I see these pictures of these beautiful children that were killed in the attack. If that's true, and not propaganda, if that's true, Guess what? Maybe you created hundreds or thousands of new potential terrorists from bombing the wrong people. So you've got to know who you We can't sort of have an investigation after we kill people. We have an investigation before we kill people. How sad is that a Republican senator is correctly lecturing the Biden administration? Hey, don't kill innocent civilians with drone strikes. So what happened? Listen, we know what happened. Um, Biden correctly withdrew from Afghanistan. You had nothing but a week-long uh, lust for vengeance and, and war and nonsense from the media. All they wanted was for the Biden administration to stay. They, you know, they called him weak. They, they called him every negative thing in the book, and they applied massive pressure on him. They drove his poll numbers down on the issue of Afghanistan. So Biden felt like after there was the attack from ISIS on the airport, which killed not just you know, it, it killed plenty of Afghans. It also killed the Taliban. It also killed American soldiers. So we all got it in that strike. 
to not look weak to retaliate to that, they just picked a target and bombed. And Biden reportedly said behind the scenes, hey, spare nothing to go after the people who did this. Well, guess what? You don't put your trust in the Pentagon or the CIA or whoever was responsible for that drone strike because they don't know what the fuck they're doing. And that was so, it was just too perfect of an encapsulation of what the war was for the entire 20 years. They killed a U.S. aid worker who was putting water bottles in his car. They thought, oh, my God, he's loading it with bombs. And they also killed children in this drone strike. It's not propaganda. We knew immediately after. There are people on the ground. So they killed innocent people in a drone strike after the attack on the airport. And then they went around telling the media, we just got ISIS. And guess what? The media ran with it like the stenographers they are. They ran with it. They pretended, oh, yes, well, the authorities told me this, so it must be true. Don't you view your job as to fact check them and to get real information? Why are you just a stenographer to them? That's exactly what they are. They're stenographers to them. So that's what the media did. And everybody thought in the aftermath, oh, they just got an ISIS person. Turns out it wasn't an ISIS person. It was innocent civilians, including children. So even Rand Paul's like, what are you doing? And now the reason he's like this, the influence in his life was his dad. His dad is a real hardcore libertarian. Libertarians happen to be correct on foreign policy stuff. They're committed non-interventionists. They're also right on drug war stuff. They want to legalize, tax, and regulate drugs. I don't know if they want to tax them, but they want to legalize them. Um, so it's this is the influence of his father. He's not as libertarian as his father was, but he's libertarian-ish. And so sometimes on foreign policy, he makes a decent point. And that's exactly what he's doing here. And the most chilling part of that back and forth is when ultimately Rand Paul gets Blinken to admit, I don't know who we killed. Well, that's exactly the problem. That's exactly the problem. You don't know who we killed. You have no idea. So why did you press the button? Imagine pressing the button in that situation. Imagine ordering the pressing of the button in that situation. Totally unacceptable. Now, I'll finish with this, guys. People were talking about, Ben Shapiro and others were talking about, we must impeach Biden. Why? Over the withdrawal from Afghanistan, where we got over 100,000 people out of the country. Doing a popular thing like pulling out of Afghanistan. Impeach him over that. Nobody said impeach him when he illegally bombed Syria twice. Nobody said impeach him when he massacred a civilian with a drone. This is the one time that this serious issue is being brought up in this hearing on the withdrawal. The worst part of the withdrawal. The attack on the airport and this retaliatory drone strike that killed civilians. This is the worst part of the withdrawal. Nobody's focusing on that. Nobody's focusing on the drone strike. Rand Paul's the only one. So really, he just Blinken is getting badgered from the right where the implication of everything everybody's saying is you should stay in, except for Rand Paul. Rand Paul's the only one who's saying, hey, this drone strike is not okay, it's not acceptable. But again, nobody's calling for impeachment over this. Nobody's calling for impeachment over the illegal bombing of Syria, which happened twice, illegal occupation of Syria as well. Talk about terrible priorities. Talk about our government being nothing but a giant representative of the military-industrial complex. Well, here we are. Credit to Biden for pulling out, but no credit at all for a drone strike that killed innocent civilians. It makes them a war criminal. It does. And look at how nonchalant they are. Oh, we're looking into it. Are oh, you looking into it. You're looking into it. Do you assassinated an aid worker and children? Totally unacceptable. Credit to Rand Paul for giving this line of questioning. Um, I'd like to hear a lot more of this line of questioning, perhaps from Democrats holding their own administration accountable, but we'll see. Highly doubt that happens.
Okay. All right, let me take a break. When we come back, Morning Joe goes full socialist. You don't want to miss it. Stay right there.
Welcome. Welcome back to the show, y'all. Welcome back to the show. Let us continue. Okay, what do I have for y'all now? Oh, this is actually my favorite story of the day. Here we go. This story right here is my favorite story of the day. Um, It's a little off the beaten path. Is that the saying? Off the beaten path, off the beaten track? I think it's path. Whatever. Um, This is the people on Morning Joe. Well, actually, specifically, Joe Scarborough himself. Out of absolutely nowhere, he went full socialist. Watch this. marginal tax rate is proposed to be raised to 39.6 from 37%, but that, as you know, doesn't get at the way the super wealthy and corporations make their money and avoid taxes. Well, and, and, and we see it every year. I, I don't understand what's going on when you have the people writing the tax bill for the Democrats saying they're concerned about moderate concerns. What, do they want Jeff Bezos and Amazon to keep paying Zero dollars a day. Is that a moderate concern or is that actually a lobbyist's concern? Because over the past few years, there are corporations that have paid zero taxes in a year. Uh, and, and just over the past couple of years, that includes Amazon, Chevron, Avis, Delta, Eli Lilly, GM, Goodyear, Halliburton, Honey, Honeywell, IBM, Netflix, Occidental Petroleum, Owens Corning. Salesforce, U.S. Steel, last year, Archer Daniels, FedEx, Nike, on and on and on. Are are moderates really concerned that those corporations may actually have to pay millions of dollars in tax? Because right now they're paying zero. (laughs) And billionaires are continuing to figure out how to pay little or nothing. Hedge fund titans are paying taxes at lower rates than their clerical employees, the people who chauffeur their Bentleys. You think that's demagoguery? You think that's popping? No, it's not. No, that's the fact. Billionaires' capital, it doesn't get taxed. Workers' wages do. And so now Democrats in Congress are saying, we need to raise the taxes on people who are working but leave billionaires alone as they continue to amass capital and continue, listen to me here, listen to me here, because everybody hates income redistribution. That makes you a socialist, doesn't it? If you're for a scheme that, that redistributes wealth, well, let me tell you something. In the world we've lived in over the past 40 years, there's been the largest income redistribution scam in American history. And it's been the middle class that's been looted while trillions keep flowing into the bank accounts of billionaires. Did you hear what I just said? Did you hear what I just said? This whole income redistribution thing we keep, oh, you can't raise taxes on people? Because that will be income redistribution. You're a socialist. Well, guess what? The very people who are saying that, the very people who are funding think tanks that will say that, the very people that are paying lobbyists to get the message out to say that, the very people who are spending millions and millions of dollars on lawyers 
and lobbyists on K Street who are saying that, they're the people who have scammed you. They're the people whose monopolies continue to be untouched. They continue to be untouched all because they can buy the best lobbyists, they can buy the best lawyers, they can buy the best influencers on Capitol Hill, across Washington, D.C., and across Wall Street. Please, please, Democrats, do better than that. Tax capital, take a dent on these, uh, these super wealthy billionaires who keep accumulating, keep amassing fortunes. You're just, I mean, when you're taxing income a little bit more, 2% here, 3% here, you're, you're missing the target. If you, if you want to make this country a fairer place, if you want to get us back to where we were before, where there wasn't just such massive, massive divergence between the super wealthy and the rest of Americans, you're going to have to rewrite your tax plan because that one's just lousy. What? That was amazing to watch. I don't know. Maybe there was like one other time in the history of this show existing where I watched Morning Joe and agreed with like a whole rant. I agree with every word of that rant. That was astonishing. What happened? It's almost like the ghost of FDR suddenly uh, took over Morning Joe Scarborough. I, I'm astonished at that rant because this guy is, he's wrong way more often than he's right. And here's a clip of him. This is a former elected Republican. He was a Republican congressman in the past. Here he is lecturing the Democrats about how the Democrats need to have a tax plan that goes after the wealthy and corporations much more, much more. By the way, billionaires saw their wealth increase $5.5 trillion during the pandemic. Let that sink in. Because regular people, average people, working people got obliterated. And they lost ground. Billionaires gained $5.5 trillion. They got 54% richer during the pandemic. So what's Joe Scarborough saying here? He's saying, listen, if you, if you raise taxes on income, even if you do it for the top 1%, you're just, you're barely making a difference. It's a drop in the bucket. Wow, you're taking the top marginal tax rate from 36% to 39.6%. Income is nothing compared to wealth accumulation, compared to net worth, for example. And this is the whole idea of a wealth tax. Uh, you know, a wealth tax raises a colossal amount of money, and it goes after the people who really need to be taxed, who are just sitting on capital and don't even know what to do with all of it. You know, it's all, we covered the story from ProPublica. There was this big tax story that they came out with, basically showing how the effective tax rate that a lot of these billionaires pay is like 3%. It's nothing. It's nothing, because they don't take it as income. It's not how they take their money. It's not through a salary or income. So they find a way for it to basically not to get taxed at all. He brought up the corporations there. Corporations, they have an army of lobbyists and lawyers 
and experts who find these endless loopholes. And so they end up legally paying basically no taxes, in some cases literally no taxes. There are some corporations where they pay a negative tax rate, which means they get a net subsidy from the government. Now, this is all at the same time that you're paying your taxes. I'm paying my taxes. We're all paying our taxes like suckers. And wealth and corporate profits are just sitting there. So um, I want to – there's this article I brought up a number of times. I wanted to bring it up again for you guys. I'm going to read you a little bit from it. This is an article in Time magazine. The title of it is, The Top 1% of Americans Have Taken $50 Trillion From the Bottom 90%. That's the title in a Time magazine piece. Now, what's it based on? Well, here, let me, let me give you some of this. This is not some back-of-the-napkin approximation. According to a groundbreaking new working paper by Carter C. Price and Catherine Edwards of the Rand Corporation, um, had the more equitable income distribution of the three decades following World War II, 1945 through 1974, merely held steady, the aggregate annual income of Americans earning below the 90th percentile would have been $2.5 trillion higher in the year 2018 alone. This is an amount equal to nearly 12% of GDP, enough to more than double median income, enough to pay every single working American in the bottom nine deciles an extra $1,144 a month, every month, every single year. Isn't that incredible? Price and Edwards calculate that the cumulative tab for our four-decade-long experiment in radical inequality has grown to over $47 trillion dollars from 1975 through 2018, at a recent pace of about $2.5 trillion a year. That number we estimate crossed the $50 trillion mark by early 2020. So now it's over $50 trillion that they've, the top 1% has stolen from the bottom 90%. Now, how has this happened? Well, corporations have effectively bought the government and rigged the rules in their favor. That's the gist of it. There's also been a, a war on unions, a massive decline in union rates which, of course, effectively robs the middle class. So it's because of the corruption, it's because of the money in politics, it's because of the influence of the billionaires and the corporations, it's because of the lack of a real strong social safety net. we got to raise taxes on the wealthy, and we need to use it to fund college for people, trade school if you don't want to go to college. We should also have that for free. Health care, people shouldn't have to pay out of pocket for health care. That's insane. Every other developed country... You get sick, you go and you get help, and you leave, and you pay zero dollars and zero cents. One of the best parts there of what uh, Joe Scarborough said, he said, don't tell me this is a concern of the moderates. Like, oh, the taxes are being raised too much on Goldman Sachs (laughs) or on Jeff Bezos. (laughs) No, that's not a moderate's concern. That's a lobbyist's concern. Because if you look at the polling, moderates want to raise taxes on the wealthy just as much as the left. That is a mainstream American position. That is smack dab in the center of American public opinion. That is the centrist position. That is the moderate position to raise tax on the wealthy. Virtually everybody wants to raise tax on, on the wealthy. About half of Republicans want to raise taxes on the wealthy. Bottom line is, there already is a war going on right now. It's a war on the middle class and the poor. It's a war on the working class. There is redistribution of wealth, and the redistribution is going from the bottom to the top. So for us to just even the score and have a good tax system, they say, oh, you can't do that because you're doing class warfare. No, no, no. 
They've been doing it on the bottom 90% all along. All along. And even Joe Scarborough knows that and points it out. Scarborough, former Republican politician, has now moved to the left of the Democrats and is saying, you need a better tax plan than this. Don't drop all the taxes on capital, but keep the slight raise on income. And by the way, who do you have to thank for all those changes? I'm sure it's Manchin and Cinema and Warner and all of the blue dog Democrats and the conservative Democrats, the moderates, but they're not moderate. They are corporatists, corporatists. And even Joe Scarborough knows this and is pointing it out. He said, is it a moderate concern or a lobbyist concern to get rid of tax hikes on capital? It's a lobbyist concern. So what an amazing video, man. Credit to Morning Joe on that one. Shit. That's one of the better rants I've ever seen on MSNBC. I mean, that rivals, you know, the old Dylan Radigan when he would go nuts. I mean, that's right up there, man. I'm surprised. I, I did not know he had that opinion in him. I did not know he was such a big believer in raising taxes on the wealthy. But I will say, pretty convenient that now you say it. Bernie Sanders was running for president, and you guys were nothing but hostile to him. He's the one who actually would have done it and would have fought for it. Would have been more aggressive than even Biden's being. So, but either way, I mean that's a, a phenomenal rant, and um, that's the way that everybody in Washington should be thinking. Instead, they're thinking about how to protect billionaires and corporations. Okay, next. So President Trump um, has now lashed out at George W. Bush because George W. Bush took some shots. Um, at Trumpists over January 6th. This is in the Hill here. Let me read this to you. Quote, so interesting to watch our former President Bush, who is responsible for getting us into the quicksand of the Middle East and then not winning as he lectures us that terrorists on the right are a bigger problem than those from foreign countries that hate America and that are pouring into our country right now. Trump said in a statement distributed by Save America PAC, if that is so, why was he willing to spend trillions of dollars and be responsible for the death of perhaps millions of people? He shouldn't be lecturing us about anything, he added. Trump noted that the Twin Towers came down, came down during his watch, and said Bush led a failed and uninspiring presidency. He shouldn't be lecturing anybody, Trump said. So yet again, think of the Onion article, worst person you know made a good point. Yeah, I mean, he's right about this. Now, uh, of course, where Trump is wrong is, you know, he's dodging the reality that the people who were there on January 6th, basically doing a riot, um, they're no angels. They're no saints. Uh, you know, they're not, these are just patriots who want good things for the country. No, they are absolutely brainwashed by One American News Network and Newsmax and Fox News and you and they thought the election was stolen, so they were willing to uh, really do some damage in order to try to um, right the wrong. But that's exactly the problem, is it's bullshit. The election was not stolen. Um, I think Trump probably at one point did know it wasn't stolen, but now he's probably convinced himself of his own, own nonsense. And, um, you know, do a lot of people there have a lot of real problems that need to be addressed? Yes, of course. You know, I'm, I want right-wingers to live in a country that cares about everybody as well and gives them health care and gives them higher wages and all that stuff, for sure. Um, but it's also the case that this is not a rational reaction to being oppressed and downtrodden. And also, some of the people at the Capitol riot were not oppressed and downtrodden. They were relatively well off, and there was a bunch of reporting on that as well. So sometimes brainwashing is just brainwashing, and a lot of these people were brainwashed. And so 
they are willing to do violence for political reasons, for political causes. There's a term for that. When you're willing to do violence for politics or religion, that's terrorism. Now, it's a different degree of terrorism from somebody who's beheading somebody or flying a plane into a building, of course, um, but I don't care if you're offended at the idea that that is the definition of terrorism, because it is that. To do a little twist on Ben Shapiro's saying, definitions don't care about your feelings. <laughs> and it, it's true that this is some level, one level or another, of terrorism if you are doing violence in order to promote your political ideology. They did that. So I have no sympathy and no love for um, the people who were there. Trump obviously, to some extent, does because he feels like they were fighting for him. Um, so on that point, Bush is correct. But on this point, Trump is correct. That George W. Bush, that's the problem here. George W. Bush lecturing about that is like, dude, you are the extremist. You are the problem. You brought us torture. You brought us illegal wars. You threw out due process and habeas corpus. You ripped up the Constitution. You spied on everybody illegally. Like, you're in no position to lecture anybody about anything. That's true. And Trump is right there. You got us in the Middle East. You got us in the Middle East. So, I mean, I guess you could say Trump is right here to criticize Bush. Say, nobody cares about what we have to say, dog. You're the problem. True. But I would also say, I don't care what Trump says either because you're also a different kind of problem. You know, and you kept the wars going, even though you did the rhetoric of we should end them. Um, we, it was, Biden had to officially end the Afghanistan war. And um, we're still in Iraq, and we were in Iraq under Trump, and he went into Syria. So, you know, it's, it's that cuck mindset of, like, you got us in. If only if I was in a position to do something about it. You were, and you didn't do anything. So I want to hear from Trump. I want to hear from W. Bush. Um, they're arguing over who's the tallest kid in kindergarten, effectively. Okay, next. So there was a five-plus-hour hearing about the withdrawal from Afghanistan the other day. Again, not the war itself. They wanted to nitpick the withdrawal. Shows you the priorities of this war-horny body. Um, so here we have a total moron GOP representative by the name of Brian Mast, and he wanted to grandstand for his next election to get a little clip here that he could show in his ad, say, hey, I hold powerful people accountable. So he's going to lecture Blinken and make a bunch of terrible points and throw a tantrum, and then I'll respond. Army Staff Sergeant Ryan Knauss. The ultimate honor he could give was to give back to his country. He would not be sorry. He would not regret it. That's what his family said. They deserve to know if you manipulated intelligence, if President Biden manipulated intelligence, and that's what led to everything going so wrong. Navy Corpsman Maxton Soviak, just 22. His family deserves to know if that's why everything went so wrong. We deserve hearings on what's going on with that leaked transcript. We deserve to know why there are others that remain in Afghanistan. Mark Frerichs, Navy veteran, disappeared in Coast Province January 30th of, of 2020. We deserve to know, we know what's going on with his release. These are things that have to be answered for. I do not believe whatsoever what you're saying about the administration not working to manipulate that intelligence. To me, that is the most logical, the most logical explanation of how so many in the intelligence community got this so wrong about what was going to happen in Afghanistan, why it would seem somehow logical 
for President Biden to leave the, quote, most advanced military weaponry, why, why some would not speak out against that, if they were getting the false intelligence because it was coming from the top down to manipulate it, in my opinion, that's absolutely aid and comfort to the enemy. I absolutely wonder if you were complicit in this as well. I find it hard to believe that President Biden would do that without you being aware of this. And these are things that we deserve to know better answers, have better hearings on this. I do not believe a word that you're saying on this. Simply put, I do not wish to hear from you. I'm not yielding you a moment of What you said is dead wrong. I don't wish to hear your lies. Your first lies when you step up in front of the camera. And do not listen to me. Don't wish to hear your lies. Don't wish to hear your lies. Gentlemen, the gentleman's time. The gentleman's time has expired. And so is the secretary. The gentleman's time has expired. The secretary can answer the question. I didn't ask him a question. You did ask a question. I don't want to hear from the secretary. The gentleman's time. Now, I don't, maybe they actually thought that the government was going to fall immediately. But 
Everybody knows they're liars. Look at how they lied us into the Iraq war. I mean, there's so many documented lies. They lied us into the first Iraq war. They lied us into the second Iraq war. Uh, Colin Powell going to the UN, holding up the vial, saying, look, Saddam Hussein has yellow cake. And it was all lies. It was all bullshit. It was all not true. They're either the biggest incompetent people on the planet or they're liars. Now, this instance for Afghanistan here, with the, the government falling, I actually think they're just incompetent, and they didn't know. Um, maybe they lied, but, it, you know, it's probably the case that they're incompetent. But the idea that it was Biden who manipulated the intelligence, Biden barely knows where he is. Biden's sitting in the Oval Office, you know, looking around and hearing noises. The idea that he lied, and you're so convinced he lied, and I think the thing that annoyed me the most is when he was like, I want to hear from you. Well, then why the fuck are you at the hearing? Why are you, ask, why are you sitting in front of him and giving your spiel if you don't want to hear anything back? That's so obnoxious. Yeah, you said your piece. Now listen to what he has to say in response. You don't have to accept what he said, but don't give me this, I don't want to hear from you. He's just a total virtue signaler, pretending like you care about the, the soldiers who died. Now, by the way, by the way, if you actually cared about soldiers dying... We should have gotten out of Afghanistan way earlier. And you should have been advocating for us to get out of Afghanistan way earlier. But that's not something that this guy does. It's not something that almost any of these politicians do. Now all of a sudden you care, oh my God, the people who died in this attack when we were on the way out. What about the thousands who died while we were there, when we shouldn't have been there? What about when we allied with warlords with child sex slaves? Do you have anything critical to say about that? Or is it only for when we leave? What about the war profiteering and the exploitation and the imperialism and the jacking natural resources? Anything to say about any of that? Sending young American men and women to go die overseas for an imperialist project, for profits for the military-industrial complex. Do you have anything to say about that? No, you're only angry when we leave and something happens. These guys, they're such hacks, and their moral compass is totally broken. The implication of everything he's saying here is we shouldn't have left. We should have just stayed there. So that in the long run, more people could have died. More Americans could have died. More Afghan civilians could have died. That's what you wanted. I'm going to grandstand over these deaths and imply we should have just stayed where more people would have died. You wouldn't have said anything about those deaths in that timeline. Now would you have? Of course you wouldn't have. Hack. I don't wish to hear from you. Okay, then fucking leave. You should have never came in the first. I don't want to hear from you. The whole point is that four people there to hear from Blinken. That's the whole point of the hearing. But as I said, five-plus-hour hearing on the Afghanistan withdrawal, nothing about the war itself, which shows you where the priorities are of this government body that is totally bought and owned by the military-industrial complex. I didn't do this yet, but people should go look up what Brian Mast, how much money he's taken from the defense industry, because I guarantee you there's something there. Okay. All right, next. Dave Rubin um, absolutely humiliated himself in this clip. He's very clearly trying to get on Bill Maher's show, but he tries to, like, mask it a little bit. And He's also trying to do this chest-thumping, like, I was right all along thing, which totally doesn't fit the scenario. So anyway, here he is commenting on Bill Maher. The title of the video is something ridiculous, like, is this the issue that finally gets Bill Maher to leave the left? No, Dave, because adults, don't look at politics like you do, where you're always looking for a team. Uh, Dave Rubin was on team left wing at one point, and then he flipped to team right wing. He doesn't understand that things are complex and complicated and nuanced, and that you have to go by individual issues. 
you have to go on the specific policies. And so maybe as you grow, this is what happens with a lot of people, as they grow, maybe there were two or three issues, four maybe, where, I, hey, on this one, this specific one, I changed my mind. Happens to everybody. It is so rare that anybody has a complete and other, almost like a religious transformation where they say, I've now changed my mind on like 35 different political issues over the course of three months. Well, then you're just, you're just a hack and you're trying to play a role and you're not really thinking about this shit. That's Dave Rubin. That's Dave Rubin. I went from believing all the things on this side to now believing all the things on this side. Because you're a clown person and you, and you were looking for a niche. And that's what you did. You found a niche. So here he is playing a clip of Bill Maher, commenting on it. Let's watch and then I'll break it down. To me, when people say to me sometimes, like, boy, you know, you go after the left a lot these days. Why? I'm like, because you're embarrassing me. <laughs> that's why I'm going after the left. In a way you never did before. Because you're inverting things that I, I'm not going to give up on being liberal. This is what these teachers are talking about, that, that you're taking children and making them hyper aware of race in a way they wouldn't otherwise be. I mean, I, I saw last night on the football game, uh, Alicia Keys saying, lift every voice and sing, which now I hear is called the Black National Anthem. Now, maybe we should get rid of our national anthem, but I think we should have one national anthem. I think when you go down a road where you're having two different national anthems, colleges sometimes now have, many of them have different graduation ceremonies for black and white, separate dorms. This is what I mean, segregation. You've inverted the idea. We're going back to that under a different name. Bill, you have to understand what's going on here. First off, I just want to say thank you for repeating everything that I was saying five years ago, right? I've been screaming about this stuff for five years. Watch my Why I Left the Left video from Prager You from five years ago, okay? So that's nice, and I know that your guys watch my show, so I'll talk directly to the producers of the show. Everything that Bill said there is now conservative. Yes, we shouldn't have two national anthems. I don't know what he meant by we should maybe change our national anthem. No, we shouldn't. Um, but yes, they're teaching racism in school. They're teaching this hyper-racialized thing in school that's coming. There's no liberals to stand up for this stuff. And then he brings on people like Adam Schiff on his show, and it's obvious that he supports a guy like Adam Schiff. And we see this with all the liberals, a guy like, Bill, uh, like Joe Rogan, for example. And even, I'm, I'm really trying not to make these personal attacks. I'm trying to talk about this in the idea set of what these guys talk about. Joe Rogan, uh, in, in an odd sense, did the right thing because he was a Bernie supporter, which made no sense, right? Makes no, in my view, it makes no sense to be a Bernie supporter. You sit down with people like Jordan Peterson and all these brilliant people for years and years and years, and at the end, when it came down to it for the presidency, you were supporting, uh, you were supporting Bernie Sanders. Makes no sense. But Joe Rogan, when he signed the hundred million dollar deal, which I'm told is a lot more than a hundred million dollars with Spotify, he lived in California, and you know what he did right before he signed the deal? He left. He went to Texas. The thing that he was telling everybody to vote for, that he's voting for, Bernie Sanders, was to raise taxes on everybody, especially people like him. So the, the liberals, in a sense, they're all still confused. They're looking at their watch, and a watch should be right twice a day, but they can't seem to ever get it right. They can't seem to ever get it right. So it's like, Bill Maher, take the last step here. 
I get it. You're in Hollywood. You've, you've made your career on being a liberal. That is, that is a lofty goal and a worthwhile thing. Trust me, I get it more than most people. But at this point, unless you're willing to say, I will not support any Democrats, it doesn't mean the Republicans are great, but everything you believe in is now a Republican principle. Now, if you really still think that high taxation makes sense, if you really still think that handouts make sense and affirmative action makes sense, and some of that stuff, well, then we just got to keep teaching you a little bit. But I don't even think he believes in that stuff. I've seen him talk to, to Ben Shapiro. He doesn't really disagree. I, I, we could send him a couple Thomas Sowell videos. I don't think he disagrees with that, but I get it. His whole brand, and again, this isn't an attack on him. His brand is, I've been the liberal, like conservatives, and this is also the dangerous. If you keep saying that everybody else, the conservatives, they're always racist and bigots and backwards, and, and in Bill's case, they're also believers, right? They're believers, they're religious, so they must be idiots, which is also a big problem that the liberals have, and they better freaking get over it. Um, well, now I, he's painted himself in a corner, so he can't really do anything. So anyway, so the producers that I know watch this, which is why Bill repeats everything that I say all the time, because even the stuff right there about national heavens and all that, like, yeah, doing it months ago, it's like, Bill's welcome here, we'll do it unedited, I'm happy to be on a show, I'm not attacking him. I don't even really want to be on the show anymore. I've been canceled a couple of times. I, I'm sort of like, it doesn't even, it's not even about me. I don't actually, I, I sort of retract that. It doesn't even matter. Um, that last part is what it's all about. That last part. Bill, yeah, I'd be happy to go on your show. I mean, I, 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 me? Bro, I didn't want to really go on your show. I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't want to really go on your show. I wasn't, I wasn't even thinking about that. That's not the whole reason why I'm talking about this and why I'm butthurt. We saw the same thing with Rogan. Rogan, in the last, uh, you know, podcast he did with Dave Rubin, Rogan had a light bulb moment where he's like, this guy is really not that bright. And I'm sure Rogan also gets the sense that Rubin is like, he was just looking for a lane. He doesn't really believe these things he's saying. And so as soon as Rogan had that light bulb moment, this is one thing I know for sure about Rogan, is that he only respects people if he feels that they're honest. And even if it's somebody politically who I hate or you hate, um, if Rogan thinks that person is honest, he's willing to talk to them and he'll enjoy talking to them. And now I might disagree with some of his conclusions and you might disagree with some of his conclusions, but 100% guaranteed if Rogan is still has, a, a, you know, still has a communication open with certain people, he thinks they're honest. So another example is he thought Rogan was full of shit. He thought Milo Yiannopoulos was full of shit. Milo had, was on the show and he's never been back. Candace Owens, same thing. As soon as he gets the sense he thinks you're full of shit, you're gone. You're excised. You're done. And so that's what happened with Ruben. So Ruben, oh, it was the saddest thing to see ever where, like, every few months he would do this thing where he would, like, passively, aggressively comment about Rogan, and it was very clear he was butthurt and he just wanted to get back on the show. Um, there was one time where he got asked some, uh, some question about it, and he was like, yeah, you know, I mean, we reached out a couple times. We wanted to promote our new book, having her back from him. I don't really know what's going on with that. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. He sees through you. That's exactly what's going on. You know that's what's going on, and you feel it. You feel it because you know he's right, too. You know, you know the way he feels about you is accurate, that you look for a niche, you look for a lane, you found your lane, you're not really an honest actor. Now, okay, so now let's go through this. God, oh, my God, it's so – he wants it so bad to get on Bill Maher's show, so bad to get back on Joe Rogan's show. And look at the points he's making here. He's, he's so self-congratulatory where he's saying, like, I know that, the, that – uh, Bill Maher watches me. He's copying everything I say. What are you talking about? Now, listen, I used to like Bill Maher. I don't really like him anymore. I, I don't. Um, but I, he's definitely not listening to Dave Rubin. I have no doubt about that. And then he's like, well, okay, maybe, maybe it's his producers. His producers are watching me. God, he has such this unearned sense of superiority, 
You know what I mean? Like, I don't even know if he really believes this in his heart of hearts. Like, he's sort of pumping himself up because he knows nobody else will. So uh, Mars says, oh, people say to me, why do you go after the left? He says, because you're embarrassing me. And then he brings, the example that he brings up to say, here's the big one where the left is wrong. He basically brings up woke segregation, how there are some examples of, you know, colleges where they've uh, separate graduation ceremonies for black people and white people, separate dorm rooms, and it's under the guise of like, well, it's sort of like a safe space because you feel more safe and at ease among your own, and you don't have to, you know, um, try to navigate the complex racial dynamics that go on and stuff. And Bill's like, I'm against that. I'm against that. Um, And Ruben's like, thank you for repeating everything I've been saying for five years. Dave, that is not a hard issue at all. And by the way, for the love of God, somebody out there, pull the left on this question. It's going to be well over 70% of the left, probably over 80% of the left is going to say, I'm against segregation under the guise of wokeness. Paul, do you think blacks and whites should have separate graduations or separate dorms in college? I guarantee you, well over 70 or 80% of the left is going to say, of course they shouldn't. Of course we should have integration and diversity and multiculturalism. So he makes it seem like, I'm Dave Rubin. I'm taking a brave stand before anybody else. I can't cite a single person I know in this left-wing political commentary game who wouldn't instantly say, of course I'm against woke segregation. It's such an easy issue. Now, the mistake, it's not really a mistake, but the, uh, the issue with Rubin and Marr here is that they assume that it's a much bigger percentage of the left that believes in woke segregation than it really is. And they hype this thing up as if it's a threat, as if, like, you know, soon the Democrats will be pushing for it. Are you out of your mind? There's not a single Democratic politician who has pushed for officially bringing back segregation. So they hype up the threat as if it's a real threat, and it's not. Everybody, of course, doesn't believe in segregation under the guise of wokeness. So, and then he goes on to say, well, everything Bill Maher said there is now conservative. It, that's not true at all. That's not even close to true. Then he goes on, again, to go back to Rogan. He says, well, he was a Bernie supporter, which made no sense. What do you mean it makes no sense? It, Bernie aligned in many ways with Joe Rogan's values so, and Joe Rogan's policy beliefs. Now, you might not like that. I know you don't like that, but it's true. By the way, who did he support before Bernie? Tulsi. Again, Tulsi. Now, I have my issues with Tulsi. I have big issues with Tulsi. But if you go issue for issue with the policy things that she was espousing and that she was running on at the time, it was very similar to Bernie. It was a left flank of the Democratic primary. So... Yeah, that's what he believes in. He said, well, that made no sense. You sit down and talk to people like Jordan Peterson, and how could you come to the conclusion that Bernie's right about stuff? What on earth has Jordan Peterson said in his conversations with Joe Rogan that would lead you to believe that social democracy is a bad idea? I mean, yeah, uh, Jordan Peterson leans right, of course. Uh, He's an ardent, like, anti-communist. Okay. But the Scandinavian-style social democracy, is there's not... There's nothing in those conversations. If you watch the conversations between Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan, there's nothing in there that would be like, whatever you do, don't give people health care. You know? Jordan Peterson is from Canada. Everybody has health care in Canada. Okay. Um, then he says, well, Joe Rogan lived in California, and then he went to Texas. As if that's like some sort of gotcha. It, Rogan very clearly said he didn't like that um, there were like, a bunch of riots happening in California. 
So being anti-riot is a right-wing position? No, I'm anti-riot, and I'm on the left. Many people are anti- Again, the overwhelming majority of people on the left are anti-riot. Nobody would- Hmm, I think we should burn down a bunch of small businesses today. It's something that- Who said? What Democratic politician? What person on the left? Nobody said that. So he didn't like the riots. And then also, I think that um, Rogan thought a lot of the COVID measures were too extreme uh, in- California. Now, granted, yeah, the California Democratic Party, they are the ones who are pushing for that. But Joe Rogan is allowed to disagree with that and still have other ideas that are left. And by the way, I wouldn't even classify being so restrictive as being as just being left. So me, for example, uh, I support Biden's vaccine or test policy. But I, you know, in retrospect, I don't think I would have shut down anything if we knew what we know now. I would have approached it the Japan way and had everybody wear masks. But I would have kept everything open every step of the way. So I'm anti-lockdown. Does that mean that's a right-wing belief I have? No, I wouldn't classify it as a right-wing belief at all. There are some countries where uh, the politics of, of COVID ha- actually flipped, where it's like the lefties who are more on the side of, hey, live and let live, let people take risks if they want to. And it's the right-wingers who are a little more like authoritarian and draconian and, and restrictionist, if I can make up a word. So, again, he, he says... Well, you supported Bernie, then you went to Texas. Well, Bernie was going to raise taxes, so how could you do such a thing? Joe Rogan would happily pay the higher tax rate under, under Bernie. I know, because he said it. To make it seem like, well, what a hypocrite Joe is for moving to Texas. No, he's not hypocritical. He wanted to move to that state while also having some left-wing beliefs. Is it really that hard to wrap your mind around? Um, and then finally, this is the dumbest point, and this will really this will be the last thing I say on this, but... Um, Ruben says uh, about Marr and Rogan, quote, everything you believe in now is a Republican principle. But see, that's the thing, uh, Dave. You're such a sloppy thinker. That's not even close to true. But you just assert it like it is true. Abortion, climate change, drug war, 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 higher taxes on the wealthy, college, um, you know, uh, universal health care, higher wages. These are all issues where both Marr and Rogan are left. And again, Ruben said, and I quote, everything you believe in is a Republican principle. I just gave you what? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight different things. And that's just, you know, jotting them down in two seconds. Eight different things where that is not the case. And and the problem with Ruben, there's a million problems with Ruben, but he really is, he's such a labels humper, isn't he? He's such a labels humper where like he loves to me, I'm about the realm of ideas. I was a classical liberal. And let me tell you, let me throw out other nonsense labels. Never define them and just keep talking about them. And he really does. He really is tribalist in the sense he was always looking for a tribe. I am the left-wing guy on the left-wing team and part of TYT. Now I'm the right-wing guy on the right-wing team. And I did the PragerU video. And Why are you looking for a home? Why are you looking for a side? What are you doing? It's just so embarrassing politically. Join us on our side, Joe. Fuck yourself. Join us on our side, Bill. I know you're just clout chasing, and it's very obvious. So please, for the love of God, stop embarrassing yourself. All right, next. So the other day we talked about um, Joe Biden's soft mandate. He um, drafted a policy that says, For businesses that have 100 employees or more, 
you need to either get the vaccine or get tested once a week. Okay, so, um, now by the way, we've learned since then, for example, at Fox News, 90% of the people are vaccinated who work there, 90% of the employees, and of the 10% who aren't, they have to test every day for COVID. So there are businesses out there that are way stricter than what this policy is. Again, the policy is 100 employees or more either get vaccinated or get tested. Now, I support that. Why do I support that? I support that specifically because it is a soft mandate, which is not a hard mandate, and you give people wiggle room. So I think the default should be everybody should get the vaccine, but if you're really, really committed to not getting it and you don't want to get it, I think you should have that out. But yeah, it should be a little difficult. There should be some roadblocks because we should incentivize doing the right thing on this front. Now, uh, I got another story that I'll show you in a little bit. It's what percentage of the people who are getting hospitalized and who are dying from COVID and the people who get severely ill from COVID, what percentage of them are unvaccinated? I'll give you the specifics in a little bit, but I'll just say it's exactly what the hell you think it is. It's well over 90% of people. So in other words, the vaccine works, the vaccine's effective, it's doing what it was meant to do, and it would, it's good for the entire country, for the community, for all of us as a collective, it's good, and for individuals if you get the vaccine. So. I do think you have freedom, you have liberty, you can opt out of it, but we're going to make the default that you're getting it until you opt out of it. So that's why I like Biden's, uh, you know, move here. Let me say this. I would totally oppose it if it was just, I'm mandating you get the vaccine. I think that goes too far. I think to give people no wiggle room and just say you have to get the vaccine, I think that's too far. I think that's too authoritarian. I think that's too draconian. I think even though the end result of that would be positive, it's too much of a restriction of freedom and liberty for me, for my taste to be comfortable with it. Okay, so. But now there's some polling numbers that are out on this exact question. Let's take a look at how people feel. New morning console political, political numbers requiring all employers with 100 plus employees to mandate vaccinations. 58% support, 36% oppose. Require federal workers and contractors, 57 to 36. Requiring healthcare workers, 60 to 34. So there was another poll that came out, by the way, that was 60% support for this. Now, I incorrectly thought beforehand that when they poll this question, they weren't going to poll it properly. I thought when they polled it, they would tell people, what do you think of mandatory vaccines? Now, in a situation like that, it should poll less popular than this, for sure. But this poll, when you get into the actual wording of the question, it was fair, and it was honest, and it was correct. So in other words, the poll asked, do you support requiring the vaccines or or testing? And when it was phrased correctly, these are the results. It's a wildly popular position, wildly popular. So in other words, listen, I think people think about this in a similar way to the way I think about it. There's an issue where I'm sort of right in in the line with mainstream America, where it's like, we have all the evidence that we need. We have all the data that we need. We know the vaccine is safe. We know the vaccine is effective. We know it's doing the job it's meant to do. And, you know, we're at a place now, I mean, even... When you have places that have mask mandates, for example, that is solely to protect the unvaccinated. That's what that is. So I now need to wear a mask, even though I'm fully vaccinated, because there are people who aren't vaccinated. So, and those are the people who are usually, unvaccinated people are also the people who are usually skeptical of masks too. So I need to care more about the well-being of the unvaccinated person than they care about themselves and their well-being. Does that seem fair? Does that seem just? So... Now, at least 70% of the country has at least one shot. 
And now that 70% is sort of looking at the rest of the country like, hey, dog, we gave you a lot of time to do it, to do the right thing. You haven't done it. Now, you should do it, but okay, if you're not going to do it, fine. You have your freedom, so guess what? You're going to have to get tested every week then. I think that's totally fair. I think that's totally fair. Because, yes, if everybody was vaccinated, we wouldn't even need the mask. Because there'd be so, so few people who end up getting hospitalized as a result of COVID, dying as a result of COVID, that the mask would be massive overkill. So if everybody had gotten vaccinated already, we could ditch the mask. Or if over 85% or 90% got vaccinated already, fully vaccinated, we could ditch the mask. So um, I, Biden made a political bet here. He tried to bait the Republicans into going full anti-vax. He sort of did that successfully, and they're leaning into that. That's going to hurt them. It's going to hurt them politically. So on top of Biden doing good policy here, it's also good politics. Because basically what you're saying is the 70% of Americans who got the vaccine, you're correct. 30% who didn't, you're wrong. I'm not a math person, but 70 is a lot more than 30. And those 70% are going to feel like, yeah, he's siding with me. Now, of course, there are people who are fully vaccinated, who are against mandates. But then I come full circle to my original point. It's not a hard mandate. It's not a hard mandate. When you say get the vaccine or get tested, that's, you're giving people an option. You're giving people a choice. You're saying, listen, if you're really committed for whatever reason, religious reasons, ideological reasons, because you've been brainwashed, whatever, if you're against getting it, okay, dog, do you. It is what it is. Fine. So that's, I think that's the thing that pissed me off the most in this commentary is that even people I like and respect – Lefties would be against this, and, but they wouldn't be honest with you about what it is. They would just call it a vaccine mandate. If you're talking about this and you're not telling people and you're not stressing the fact that you also have the choice to just take a test, then you're not being honest. You're being disingenuous. So, listen, I don't know um, what percentage of my audience feels whatever way about this because there is uh, – there, obviously there are a lot of right-wingers who are anti-vaccine – but there are also plenty of left-wingers who are anti-vaccine. And it stems from a genuine place of like, big pharma is evil, they're terrible, they're corrupt, they're greedy, they don't care about you. I think all that stuff is totally true. But again, I also think antibiotics work. I also, when I get sick, I'm gonna go to the hospital, or I'm gonna go to the doctor. I also think that modern medicine, with all the systemic incentives and flaws, modern medicine is way better than any sort of alternative bullshit or way better than rolling the dice. Your chances of getting sick from the vaccine or getting uh, you know, seriously ill from the vaccine or having a serious complication with the vaccine versus seriously ill from COVID, it's not even close. It's not even close. You're way better off taking the vaccine than you are not doing it. So, I, and I, told, I was talking about this on Twitter the other day too. I was, a little while ago, I was actually probably directly exposed to the virus and nothing happened. So I was so exposed to it that I had to like test, um, I had to test for like the next four days to do one of the, you know, the over the counter tests and never tested positive, never felt a single symptom. So people love, for whatever reason, people find anecdotes very convincing more so than they find the overall data. By the way, don't be like that. Always look at the data to forget the anecdotes because they're just anecdotes. When the anecdotes build up so much to tell you a giant statistical picture, then they matter. But generally speaking, go with the data and not the anecdotes. But anyway, since everybody's obsessed with anecdotes, there's my anecdote. I was 
probably directly exposed to the virus. I have good reason to believe I was directly exposed to it. And I never felt a single system, a symptom, and I never tested positive. And somebody else I know, exact same position, directly exposed to the virus, never tested positive, never had a single symptom. And we're both vaccinated. And so that leads me to believe it probably made it so that it protected me and it protected the other person. And I'm sure there's a lot of instances like that. Some people have breakthrough cases, but usually the breakthrough cases are nearly as serious as the ones when you're unvaccinated. So anyway, get the vaccine. But listen, yeah, I do want to do a little bit of an end zone dance here to let everybody know if you oppose this, you're wrong. There's a reason why 60% of the country is like, that's a good idea. Because we're still in a pandemic. We're in another wave of the pandemic. And it is largely a pandemic of the unvaccinated now. So the idea of trying to get more people vaccinated, which, by the way, this will lead to more people getting vaccinated, giving people that option or the option of a test is incredibly reasonable. It's one of the better things that Biden did. If I'm keeping track here, um, that executive order to raise the minimum wage for federal workers to $15 an hour, um, which impacted 400,000 Americans. That's one of the best things he did. The right to repair executive order is one of the best things he did. Pulling out of Afghanistan is one of the best things he did. And this is one of the best things he did. And it's wildly popular for a reason. If it was just a hard mandate, I'd oppose it. It is not just a hard mandate. It's get the vaccine or test. People like it, and I think they're correct to like it. All right, final story of the day, y'all. Here we go. So um, I want to give you guys some new numbers to really put in perspective for you, just a basic fact about the pandemic and what it's looking like right now. One of the things you often hear people say is this. This is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. We have new numbers from Pennsylvania which show whether or not this is accurate. Take a look. Pennsylvania announces breakthrough COVID data for the first time in 2021. Unvaccinated or not fully vaccinated people have so far accounted for 97% of deaths 95% of hospitalizations, and 94% of cases. Gee, I wonder if the vaccine works. Um, There's another, we showed this on the show once before. I wish I queued it up. I didn't queue it up. But um, it shows hospitalizations among vaccinated and unvaccinated. Hospitalizations during the Delta surge of the unvaccinated goes like this. The line on the graph goes like this. Just goes like sort of steadily climbs for the vaccinated it goes like this it's just like almost a total flat line but there's a little bit of a it goes up just a tiny bit right so it's this unvaccinated versus this vaccinated so in other words it's working it's working it's working in the best way which is It protects you from severe illness, hospitalization, and death. So now, are there more breakthrough cases with Delta? Yes, there are. It only gives you 50% protection from Delta. But if you do actually get COVID, it's going to be a lot more mild than if you didn't get the vaccine. So there are mostly mild cases, then there would be a handful of moderate cases, and the only instance in which you could still get, like, a severe case uh, after getting vaccinated is if there's another reason that explains it, like you're severely immunocompromised or you're 
really overweight or you're really old. And even in those instances, you're still probably faring better with the vaccine than you would have if you didn't get the vaccine. So listen, I tell you this stuff because it's important and facts are important. And again, for whatever reason, people, um, people like to cling to anecdotes more than the overall data. And they shouldn't. They shouldn't do that. I mean, are there instances of adverse effects from the vaccine? Sure. But even if you account for those adverse effects from the vaccine and you put them into the total picture, statistically, you are way better off getting it than not getting it. Because with all those adverse effects, however many there are, you add them up and then you add up, don't get the vaccine, or or excuse me, you add up if you do get the vaccine, how many lives are saved. There was a report on this already. Over 200,000 people have already had their lives saved from the vaccine. 200,000. No surprise. The polio vaccine worked. The smallpox vaccine worked. Measles, mumps, rubella. There's a rabies vaccine. Did you know rabies, if you get it, you are 100% going to die from it? Did you know that? Now, thankfully, we have a vaccine. uh, And it's actually a rare vaccine in that you could take it even after you get bitten by a fucking rabid raccoon or dog or whatever. You can take the vaccine after you get bitten, and it'll still save you. So thankfully, it's a rare vaccine where you could take it before or after, and it you know, works as a therapeutic, basically. But if you don't, didn't have that vaccine, you would 100% die if you got rabies. 100%. 100%. So, but we have something that saves people. So vaccines work. They work. And this one works really well. And so that's why I'm showing you this, because it's really important. And... There's already been five conservative radio hosts now have died of COVID, and they were all COVID skeptical. And uh, I think three of the five or four of the five on their deathbeds, we know for sure, said, I should have gotten the vaccine. I was wrong about this thing. That's heartbreaking, man. Don't be in that position. Get the vaccine. It's the right thing to do. These numbers are overwhelming, and it's going to continue like this moving forward. Okay. We are done, baby. I love you guys. Oh, wait, no, no, no. We are not done. I got one more, and it's really important. Here we go. Let me set this up for everybody. Let me set this up for everybody. You're going to like this one. So we have quite a big guest on Crystal Kyle and Friends this week, Russell Brand. So we actually mentioned this on the last uh, show Crystal and I did. By the way, check that one out. We talked to Bernie's 2020 campaign manager, Fashion Gear. But uh, we, did, uh, we did a segment where we broke down Russell Brand's debate with Candace Owens, and um, we mentioned how he's coming on next week uh, in that debate. I don't think that part of the back and forth made it to YouTube, though. See, that's why you've got you to gotta, uh, either listen to the podcast of Crystal Kyle and Friends, or you have to um, uh, pay the $5 a month and watch the video when it comes out. Because there's stuff that you're going to miss. If you, like, the clips that make it to YouTube are nowhere near, you know, the entirety of the conversations or whatever. You're really missing out if you don't uh, hop on board with that. But anyway, so Russell Brand is coming on the show. I don't know. I mean, you guys tell me. He, I think he's probably the biggest guest we've ever had on the show. Politics-wise, it's different. You could say Noam Chomsky or Cornell West were the bigger guests, uh, you know, for sure. We've had a lot of heavy hitters on but, um, you know, Russell Brand is, I would say he's up there in, like, the Rogan sphere of celebrity, like, very up there. And, by the way, he's gotten increasingly more and more political as time has gone by, so I'm really excited to talk to him, really excited to have him on. Every big guest, by the way, is because of Crystal. Crystal got Cornell West on, Crystal got Noam Chomsky on, 
um, Crystal got Russell Brand on. And there's actually a funny story behind that. So she was like, um, she reached out. Uh, they were like, yeah, and we'd love to have you on the on his show too. And I don't know if I'm actually allowed to say this. I don't know if their talk on his channel went out yet. But um, so she she took that to me and was like, oh, cool, look look at this. And I was like, hell yeah, tell him we'd love to do his show. And uh, then the whoever Russell's assistant is responding was like, yeah. Uh, Crystal's the one that we mean. That was yet like I always get. I always have these reality check moments where I'm reminded of like nobody in the official, like real official world, knows me. You know what I mean? So I, we thought they meant like we'd love to have you on, as in like you guys, as in Crystal and Kyle come on Russell's podcast, and we were like yes, and they were like, we mean you, Crystal. So I don't, I don't even know if Russell Brand knew who I was. You know what I mean? So I always have those reality check moments, and this is one of the benefits of doing the show with Crystal is that she had that a foot in that official world back when she was when she was on MSNBC at one point, but also when she was with The Hill. Once you have that foot in that official world, you know people that you wouldn't meet otherwise. I've always been an outsider. I've always been, you know, YouTuber, ground up stuff. You know, I never was a big shot in any stretch of the imagination by any stretch of the imagination. So it's always it's always her. She gets the big one. Even with Noam Chomsky, like two years ago, I reached out to Noam Chomsky and asked him to come on, and he basically brushed me off. He was basically like, yeah, um, I'd like to, but I'm sort of booked now. And then when I do start doing interviews again, there's a line, and, like, I'm going to have to make decisions as to whose show I go on and whose show I don't. Basically being like, I don't, don't want to fucking talk to you. And so, and that was, you know, there were many reasons why I didn't want to do interviews for the longest time. This is one of the biggest ones, is that it's really hard to get people, and I want to deal with that shit. And uh, I also don't like the format as much. But I like it when Crystal's there and it's me and her and we can talk to the guests. So anyway, I'm babbling on here. But uh, Cornell West got on because of Crystal. Noam Chomsky got on because of Crystal. Russell Brand got on because of Crystal. Um, sometimes I'll bring the people from the more new media world. So like Vosh, I, you know, I, that was me. Whatever. You, you guys know the deal. But anyway, you're not going to want to miss this conversation. Me, Crystal, and Russell Brand. And... Uh, we, Crystal and I had said a while ago, as soon as you guys, we have more subscribers than Barry Weiss on Substack, we're going to release a behind-the-scenes video of the studio and everything. So you can see what it's like a day in the life before we actually do the show. And guys, Barry Weiss is still draxing them sclounced. She's obliterating us. And we want to do a video of behind-the-scenes stuff, but we can't get past her. She's sort of a powerhouse. So I don't know what the numbers are now, but there was a time when it was like the news and politics realm, we were ranked like 14th and she was 13th. And so when we said, hey, as soon as we jump her, get us in front of her, and then we'll release that video, we thought like, oh, it'll be like a week. Not only is it not a week, I don't know if we'll ever pass her. She apparently is a powerhouse on Substack. And there's like a big fall off between like, once you get from 13, it falls massively to us and we would need to gain a preposterous number of subscribers in order to defeat her. But listen, it is sort of, a scandal and a crime that Barry Weiss is ahead of us. I mean, her whole thing is like, don't Palestinians suck? And the other thing, I saw this tweet the other day. She retweeted something about, like, free speech on college campuses being so important. And then the very next retweet she did was like, this Syracuse professor said something that was politically incorrect and how dare she be hired by Syracuse. It's, it's like, how, how are you not colossal hypocrite, really not that bright, terrible politics, so for the love of God, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you. Um, 
subscribe to Crystal Kyle and Friends, pay the $5 a month, get the video a day early. We love you to death. By the way, we take $0 and 0 cents for that podcast from um, corporations, from advertisers. We don't have any advertising on the show, and we never will. In fact, even on YouTube, we click off monetization. So we don't have the ads on YouTube for that. Even on the teaser clips, we click off the ads. We just wanted to build something new and different and a little more pure than everything else. And so we only fund it through the $5 per month that you guys give to see the videos a day early. And by the way, you get these great newsletters um, as well from Piper. Shout out to Piper, who does a wonderful job behind the scenes with stuff. So, um, yeah, pay the $5 a month, get the video a day early. It's definitely worth it. And for the love of God, get us in front of Barry White because I need to save what's left of my pride. And, um, hey, no better week to do it than this week because we're getting the big dog, Russell Brand, on the show, and I'm really excited for it. All right, guys. Love you, baby. I'll talk to everybody soon. Have a great rest of your day. Peace.